0: Um, tonight we're, excuse me. Tonight we're going to uh, t- really take a look at one of the um, convincing
1: elements
0: of why Christianity can claim to be the truth amongst so many claims of truth. What is it that Christianity has to offer that uh, can lead us to say, yes, this is the true religion? In other words, all things being equal. Somebody open-minded, open-hearted towards just discovering truth, uh, why do I think they would have to land on like Christianity over all the competing theories? So that's what we're going to get into tonight, and uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Our Lord and our God, we come to you in Jesus' name, Lord, and we thank you that we know you sustained us through the day today, Lord. We know that you've been our light and our guide. We pray that we are found faithful, Lord, throughout the day, that your word is on a- Lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And God, that um, all good things are from you. So, Lord, we pray that our hearts would recognize that and would be thankful towards you for all things you say and do. And, Lord, mostly that you loved us enough to send your Son uh, to die for us, Lord, and rise again to show us about new life in Him. And so, it's He who we seek to honor and, and bring joy to tonight, Lord. So, as we look at the evidence that you've given us, uh, Lord, we pray that we would not only absorb it, but uh, be able to articulate it so that we would uh, be prepared in season and out to give a defense for the reasons we have, for the hope that we have. So, Lord, uh, help that to be accomplished here tonight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Okay. Okay, so we're, the, tonight's session is called God, Religion, and Miracles. God, Religion, and Miracles. Now, here's what we can know about God. So this is going to kind of be a recap of all the weeks that we've spent together and saying, here's some summary thoughts of hopefully what you know now from the things that we've studied. Because if you've noticed, we spent very little time in the Bible. This has been very much philosophical, scientific, archaeological, biological. It's very much been in the realm of, of the sciences and showing that God has to exist through all these things. So what can we know about God from the cosmological argument? Well, from the cosmological argument, we can know God is self-existent. He has to be timeless, non-spatial, and immaterial, since all time, space, and matter came into being through Him. There had to be some cause for time, time, space, and matter that exists outside of time, space, and matter. It can't create itself. Something has to act upon it. Uh, We learned from the cosmological argument that the the cause of the universe has to be unimaginably powerful since he created everything ex nihilo out of absolutely nothing. The cause of the universe had to be personal since he chose to do all this and impersonal forces cannot choose. Also, there's personhood in this room, in this creation, there's personhood and you can't get personhood out of non-personhood. From the teleological argument, we learned we, that we can know God is supremely intelligent since his creation is unimaginably complex. And we looked at the complexity of the universe. We looked at the complexity of our own DNA. So whether you're looking through a microscope or a telescope, the complexity of it all goes way beyond uh, crediting accidents uh, to. We know that he's purposeful since he designed all life to live in an ordered environment. Uh, I I marvel at simple things like the trees of this planet grow fruit that has exactly the nutrients needed for our bodies. What relationship do we have to trees that would be supplying nutrients for us and making it juicy and tasteful and matching our taste buds and being being the right texture that our teeth can get through it just the right way. It relates to our digestive system perfectly. Um, those are coincidences that you cannot ask me to believe in. i, I got to believe there's intent by a mind behind it all. Uh, from the moral argument, we can know... I can't see that far into That's too far. Okay. All right, so from the moral argument, we can know that God is absolutely morally pure. He is the unchangeable standard of morality by which all... Actions are measured, including infinite justice and infinite love. Uh, we talked about things like, who gets to make the rules if there's no God? You know, who can, who can say that Adolf Hitler was wrong for doing what he was doing if it was just his molecules in motion? Whose molecules can sit in judgment upon Adolf Hitler's molecules? Who has the right to do that? The, the only way we could say he was wrong for what he did is if there's an absolute moral lawgiver. We talked about comparing Adolf Hitler to Mother Teresa. She universally agreed Mother Teresa was more moral than Adolf Hitler. Well, there's, if there's no standard of morality outside of us, then there's nothing to compare their morality to. So therefore, it's just a random morality with no measuring stick to say who is actually meeting a perfect standard of morality better. So we need God for all of that. So what all of these weeks... Allows us to conclude is simply this, that theism is true. It's pretty much a defeat of atheism. Atheism cannot overcome all these necessary scientific and moral arguments of what's necessary for our universe to be here and for morality to exist, um, especially because if you're a naturalist, morality is not explained through nature. You know, wh- where's the, um, moral gene? or Adam, you know, where's, where's the good molecule type of thing. So uh, it proves that theism is true. So the theistic God that we have discovered is completely consistent with the God of the Bible, and we discovered him without using the Bible. Okay, so every description we get of God in the Bible is completely consistent with everything that the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the morality argument, archaeology, everything that was described in all of those arguments, Moses wrote about a cause that would match all the scientific and moral requirements of everything being here the way it is thousands and thousands of years ago before he could even know what the argument was. Right. So not only would it be a magnificent miracle for DNA to form the way it did without a mind and for the universe to form the, uh, the physics of it all without a mind, Uh, and the relationship between us and the food of the earth without a mind, and and the gravitational pull being, as it is, uh, perfect for us, the amount of oxygen in the universe being perfect as it is, Um, all of these things where the Bible says God created the earth to be inhabited, not Mars, not Jupiter, says he created the earth to be inhabited. And no matter where you look on our planet, you can look in the air, you can look under the water. You can look anywhere on the land. You'll see life teeming everywhere. You look at our next closest planet and you see nothing. Okay? God created the earth to be inhabited in many and wonderful ways. So this type of revelation from God that we cover is called general revelation. It's open to the general public. It doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. This evidence is available to you. The revelation that we get through Scripture is called special revelation or particular revelation. And that's a type of revelation that only people with the Holy Spirit can see and understand. Now, a non-believer listening to this would say, how arrogant to say that you, know, you saved people understand something we can't. Well, yeah, that's exactly what our Bible teaches. Uh, you cannot understand the things of the Spirit if you do not have the Spirit. Uh, you can refer to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul writes that nobody can know the mind of God except for the Spirit of God, and that the same Spirit that he gives you at salvation. So now that you have the Spirit of God, you can know the mind of God, and you can be in awe and wonder over the things that God has done. All right. Okay, so now that we showed that theism is true against atheism, right, and I never really brought up agnosticism, but I, what's the agnostic say? The agnostic says that they, they don't know if God exists or not, they just don't think we're capable of knowing. He may be there, he may not, they don't think we have the ability to actually know. And the main problem I have with agnosticism is this. If you're going to say you're agnostic and say that we can't know, then you must If you're going to be credible at all, you must be able to say why we shouldn't believe people like the Apostle John, who said you can know. Because the Apostle John will say this in 1 John chapter 1. He'll say, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, that life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So now, as an agnostic, the burden's on you to say, believe me, not John. John said he saw and heard and touched God in the flesh. So the agnostic must say, don't believe him because what? He was a drunk, because he was a known psychopath, because he was delusional. What reason should we not believe John? Because John went through a lot of trials, including being dipped in boiling oil, including being sentenced to a labor camp on the island of Patmos to live out his old age and hard labor. And he, he submitted to all of that to simply say, yes, I've seen and heard and touched God. Okay, so if you're an agnostic, you must overcome the Apostle Paul, who said, I was persecuting Christians and I was going to I received letters of approval to go to Damascus and Syria to arrest and possibly even kill Christians, and before I got there I became the most powerful Christian you'll ever meet in your life. That's quite a trip. Right? So what'd you do on the drive to Damascus? Well, I went from Christian killer to greatest Christian apostle. What did you do? I was blinded for three days, and now I'm willing to be beaten, jailed, and even die for the Christian cause. So now you must not believe Paul, who says, I met the risen Christ. You must not believe Paul when he said over 500 people saw him at once. You must not believe Paul when he says that Jesus appeared to James and to Peter and to the other apostles and and appeared to over 500 at once and then appeared personally to himself. So to be agnostic, you've got to overcome the people that say, no, we've heard, we've seen, we've touched, we know. Okay? And the other thing that they got to overcome is this eyewitness testimony and miracles that we're going to talk about today. So we can see that the unity we are searching for must originate from a theistic religion. Atheism won't cut it, and, and agnosticism won't cut it, and it has to be a theistic religion. It can't have come from a non-theistic one. This leaves us with Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. So everything I've said, except when I've dapped into the Bible now and again, but everything else I've said for the last how many weeks, six weeks or seven weeks, those three religions would amen. They agree that there was a creation at the beginning of the world, that God made the universe. They would agree with everything we've taught so far. So the question is, now: how do we distinguish the, the mutually exclusive claims of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity? We eliminated all pantheistic religions, because pantheistic religions, first of all, say there's many gods, and those gods are part of the material world. So what they can't explain is how the material world get here, if the gods are materi- part of the material world. We need something separate from the material world. That's been proven. So pantheistic religions are gone, like Hinduism, and Buddhism, um, New Ageism. Uh, we got rid of secular humanism because we proved that uh, the explanation for all this has to come from theism, so it can't be an atheistic religion. So we got rid of the polytheism of Mormonism and Taoism, the pantheism of Taoism, Wicca, Confucianism, and Shinto. Okay, all those are eliminated by this. Okay. Now, how do we disprove polytheism? How do we know it's a monotheistic religion, not a polytheistic religion? Well, because the definition of God, the most accepted universally used definition of God, is that of which there can be nothing greater. If there's a greater being than God, then guess who he would be? God, right? So God has to be the sum total of all attributes, good attributes, in their perfect and most exalted state. Perfect, most exalted love, compassion, justice, all of that. Now, That doesn't allow for polytheism to thrive because God is infinite and there can't be more than one infinite being. You can't know of more than one infinite being. Because to distinguish one infinite God from another with all of their attributes being perfect, the only way to know there's more than one is something distinguishes them. And what would distinguish one God from another? Well, he would, since to be God, you have to have all great attributes in their perfect state. The only way to distinguish one is one lack an attribute. Then you can tell the difference. But as soon as he lacks it, he's no longer what? God. No longer a God. So they're caught in this world of, if there are more than one God, then we couldn't know unless they told us. And the only one we've heard from says um, the Lord your God is one. Right? So if one being lacks something that the other has, then the lacking one is not infinite, because an infinite being by definition lacks nothing. So polytheism has very bad philosophical problems here. All right. C.S. Lewis and The Screwtape Letters. How many of you are familiar with The Screwtape Letters? A okay, fantastic book. And he writes, you've you got to make sure you know how he's writing that book because he's actually writing it from the devil's viewpoint. Okay. So when he talks about the enemy, he's talking about God. All right. So. He's training his nephew Wormwood to be the next Satan. It's like Satan wants to retire. He's done bringing up his nephew Wormwood to be the next um, Satan. So in answering the question of why God doesn't simply reveal himself face-to-face with each and every one of us, okay, as he did with Paul and others, C.S. Lewis points out that it seems this type of encounter actually overwhelms and overpowers our own free will. So when people say to me today, hey, if God just showed up today, I'd, I'd believe him. What I point out to him is when he did show up, most people didn't believe him. So that's not a full-proof method. In fact, Jesus Christ himself taught about the rich man and Lazarus. When the rich man is suffering the torments of hell, he says, would you send somebody to my brothers to at least tell them about this awful place so they won't come here? And the answer that Jesus provides is they have Moses and the prophets, meaning they have their Old Testament. They don't believe them. They won't believe even if they saw someone risen from the dead. Okay? So he's saying God has ordained the scriptures to be the convincing proof of the reality of God, so much so that even a personal appearance of God uh, is, wouldn't be as convincing. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So, C.S. Lewis will put it this way. C.S. Lewis will say... You must have wondered why the enemy, which is God in his book, does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses in an, any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use, merely to override a human will, as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for him useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. Okay. If, God, if, God cho- if God has chosen to not override our free will, perhaps He's chosen a more authentic way. God has chosen to inspire certain men over the centuries to write down the revelation of Himself, what they saw and heard from Him. You see, written language is a precise medium of communication that can be easily duplicated, as we saw through our 25,000 copies, and passed on to succeeding generations. Yet it can also be easily ignored by those who freely decide that they don't want to be bothered by God. So this becomes the perfect revelation. Why? Because this becomes the perfect test of the human heart. If your heart is open and humble and right, you'll be taken into this. If your heart is skeptical and arrogant and uh, condescending towards it, then you'll find every reason not to, to read it. So this becomes a perfect test of the human heart. It will not ravish your freedom, but it will certainly feed your soul if that's what you're wanting to happen. All right. So a book would work as a valid but not overpowering means of communication from God. So now the question becomes, whose book? Whose book did he use? The book of the Jews, just the Old Testament, not the New? Did he use the book of the Christians, where it's Old and New Testament? Or did he use the book of the Muslims? They're all monotheistic religions that fit the paradigm of everything we've taught so far through this class. So which book did he use? Well, now we need to come up with a way of... Evaluating these books and seeing. Now, we already went through reliability, and we saw that uh, the New Testament, uh, we saw that the Quran didn't even rank amongst the top books in reliability at all. Okay? It, didn't, it wasn't even the rankings of it all. So, what is an identifying feature that will help us understand this, or help us choose which book? Well, ancient kings would write letters that would go out into the land, or even sometimes throughout the world. But how was one to know if, the king, if it was the king who actually wrote that letter? Well, the king would use a signet ring, and that signet ring would have his unique symbol on it that he would put in wax and stamp onto that letter. Okay, So it was unmistakable to the recipients that yes, this indeed came from the king. So, does God have a seal that he used to authenticate his messages, becomes the question. And tonight I'm going to suggest to you that that's the purpose of miracles. Miracles are done by God to authenticate his message and his messenger. To authenticate his message and his messenger. So Nicodemus confirms that the nature of miracles authenticate the messenger. In John chapter 3, In John chapter 3, we read this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that's come from God. Well, now, how did Nicodemus come to that conclusion? It says, for no one can do these miracles that you do unless God is with him. So what authenticated Jesus as a true prophet in Nicodemus? Saying the miracles. that authenticated the messenger says, so nobody can do the things you're doing unless you're from God. Okay, now, So we've already demonstrated beyond a reasonable doubt that a theistic God exists who created the universe. Since that is so, the miracle of creation in Genesis 1 is established as a scientific, I could say possibility, I could say scientific likelihood, but I think we've gone far enough to say scientific fact. This makes every other miracle in the Bible easy to believe. So what I'm saying is, sometimes people will say, well, I just have trouble with that whole um, raising the dead, raising Lazarus a little girl. I have a problem with sight to the blind. Or, I just have a problem with that weird miracle of uh, the woman just touching the hem of his garment and her condition that she's been having for years and years, 12 years, is gone. Just at the touch of his garment. Well, the thing is this. Once we scientifically have shown through guys like Einstein and Hubble and guys like that, that the universe is unexplainable apart from God doing a miracle. God is violating the first and second laws of thermodynamics by creating this universe. Violation of these natural laws is called a miracle, right? When dead people rise, it's violating natural law. When blind people see, it's violating natural law. So these are miracles. So once we have established that this universe is impossible apart from the miracle of a creator God, now what stops any other miracle from ever happening? The same God that you're, you live in this universe, the same God that did that miracle, now we should we should have no problem believing any other claim of any other miracle. People will say, well, I don't know about a man being in a fish belly, right? Okay. Well, do you know, when Jesus wants to convince us that he's going to rise from the dead on the third day, he uses, he says, I will give you no sign of that except for the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish for three days, right? So the most important event of Jesus' life is the third day resurrection. And he says, The only sign I'll give you is a sign that you have such trouble believing in. Right? The sign of Jonah. Now, Jesus could have used so many. Things there. But he chose the one that so many people struggle over. So um, if you don't believe in things like a man being on the belly of fish for three days, you must say this. I have trouble believing it because I think I know more than Jesus. Because he clearly used that as proof of his third-day resurrection. Now We're going to talk about the skeptics to all of this, those that object to the possibility of miracles. So going right into the, the belly of the dragon here, Okay, we're going to hear right from Benedict Spinoza, one of the great objectors to the possibility of miracles. Now, his objection, I think, is rather simple to overcome. We're going to get to David Hume. That's going to take a little more unpacking, but you're going to see that his logic will overcome him as well. All right, so Benedict spinoza's objection to miracles benedict spinoza in the 1670s proposed the following objection to the possibility of miracles he said miracles are violations of natural laws I'll All agree he says natural laws are immutable they can never be changed so it's impossible to violate an immutable law so therefore miracles are impossible It's a bit circular in its reasoning, and we'll unpack that in a moment, but let's make sure everybody's got it so far. Okay. So he says, here's what a miracle is. It's a violation of natural law. Natural laws can never be changed. So it's impossible to violate immutable law. So therefore, miracles, which are violations of that law, and that's an impossible event to happen, so therefore miracles are impossible. So that's what Spinoza said, why we shouldn't believe in miracles. Well, the problem with Spinoza's theory is that it begs the question, he states categorically that natural laws are immutable. But are they? Are natural laws immutable? Are they completely unchangeable? Well, Spinoza's argument has fallen out of contention ever since the Enlightenment. Well, well, let me explain this first. I'm getting ahead of myself. So, Spinoza... The problem with Spinoza's theory, he states categorically that natural laws are immutable. Here's the problem with that. We've already established things like the creation of the universe. We've already, now, Spinoza wouldn't know about DNA and things like that. So, but now that we know about things like DNA and things like that, we know that the, the effect cannot be greater than the cause. Remember that, that, um, that law? It's a, it's a law of cause and effect. The effect cannot be greater than the cause. So now we have our bodies as an effect. We need a greater cause on our own bodies for our bodies. The universe is an effect. We need something greater than the universe to cause the effect of the universe. So now the problem with Spinoza's theory, when he says natural laws are immutable, is he has zero explanation then for how the second law of thermodynamics that says all matter goes from a state of order to a state of chaos over time. The chairs you're sitting in were much more reliable, brand new, than they will be 20 years from now, Correct?
1: They're going to break
0: down molecularly. Second law of thermodynamics is all things break down. They go from a state of order, and over time they go to a state of chaos. Well, the universe at the Big Bang was complete chaos that went into a state of complete order. It's exactly the opposite of the second law of thermodynamics. It is a violation of natural law. Also, the first law of thermodynamics says matter cannot be created nor destroyed. Well, we have matter, don't we? And if it can't be created, it can't be created, and we know the universe is not eternal, that's been scientifically proven, then how did the matter get here? We know at one time it, there was no matter before the Big Bang, and now there is. But the first law of thermodynamics says you can't create matter, and you can't destroy it. So the question is, if you can't create it, then how do we have matter today? So the universe stands as a violation of both the first and second laws of thermodynamics, where Spinoza says these laws are immutable. Well, we just muted two of them. Okay? So that doesn't work. So people have turned to David Hume for their objection to miracles. Now, David Hume's self-defeating claim is this. He says, any talk of God is meaningless. Because such talk of God does not involve empirical observation or self-evident truths. So, because when we talk of God, he says it doesn't involve empirical observation or self-evident truth, all talk of God is meaningless. Now, the first problem with that is this. John, that I, I just read you verses from John, where we have a man who says, I saw him, I touched him, I heard him, and now I'm declaring him, okay? John is saying, I have empirical proof of the existence of God. What did John write in his gospel, chapter 1? How did he start his gospel? Same way he started First John, with the words, in the beginning, right? In the beginning was the Word, okay? So he's pointing you back to Genesis 1, in the beginning. He says, the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He says, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Now, he says that word was with God, and the way we quote it in English, says, and the word was God. In the Greek, it's literally saying, the word was with God, and God was the word. God was that word that I'm talking about. And then in verse 14, he says, and that word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So he's clearly saying Jesus is indeed God. Now, that's empirical observation. Okay, The very thing David Hume says, whenever you talk about God, you don't have that. So before Jesus Christ, before John 1, talk of God was rather philosophical. We didn't really have a figure on earth to observe, we had prophets that said, I heard them, I heard him, I heard them. This is what he said. And then you had consequences that when you went against the prophet, all these consequences came. And when you obeyed the prophet, all these blessings came. So if you could go, hey, I believe that when he said, if I don't do this, this will happen, and it did. Or if I do do this, this good thing will happen, and it did. And you could put two and two together and go, therefore, that prophet must be telling the truth about God. Then you became a believer. But it was nothing observable about God. It was you just observing through the prophet, correct? But now in the New Testament, the very thing that the Old Testament is constantly pointing towards, we have the empirical proof of Jesus Christ. God is no longer a philosophical conversation as much as he is an historical conversation. Okay. It's much more empirical to talk about history than it is philosophy, Correct. So Jesus makes this conversation about God now in history. The way we speak of people like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, we can speak about Jesus Christ and therefore God. Correct? All right. Now, did that turn? I can't see nothing. Yeah, that's a good turn. turned Okay. Um, Actually, that went backwards didn't it? Don't say that. The one I'm looking at has it. Tell me if we're good. All right. So, objections to miracles, more of David Hume. We're going to quite a few slides here on David Hume. So, Hume's argument can be summarized as follows. He says this. Natural law is by definition a description of a regular event. That's completely true. That's why they're regular events, because they follow natural law. Two, a miracle by definition is a rare occurrence. That's all amen and hallelujah David Hume, right? So far, so good. Three, the evidence for the regular is always greater than that for the rare. Now, depends on what you mean. If you're talking about amounts of evidence, then, of course, the amount of evidence for regular occurrences is greater than that for rare. That's why we call them rare, right? But what he means is the evidence for regular occurrences is better evidence than that for rare occurrences. It's greater because it's better. So that's what we're going to attack. Four, a wise man always bases his belief on the greater evidence. Five, therefore, a wise man should never believe in miracles. Okay? So, let's discuss and unpack David Hume's argument here. Okay, the weakness in Hume's argument lies in the premise number three, which was the evidence for the regular is always greater than that for the rare. Now, if we can give one counterexample, that'll disprove his theory. But because you guys paid so much money to be here, I'm going to give you more than one counterexample. All right. So here's a few. The origin of the universe happened how many times? Once. That means it was a rare occurrence. Is there evidence that there's a universe? So, but David Hume said, well, you shouldn't believe it, because it's a rare occurrence, and wise people don't believe the evidence of rare occurrences. Okay? How about the origin of life? How many times did that happen? Whether you believe in Adam and Eve or evolution, how many times did the origin of life happen? Once. Therefore, rare occurrence. Therefore, David Hume says, don't believe that there's life on this planet. Three. David Hume's birth happened how many times? Once. Rare occurrence. Therefore, you should not believe in David Hume. Okay. So if Hume held consistently to his argument against miracles, he could neither believe in macroevolution, the universe, nor himself. He confuses probability with evidence. Hume doesn't weigh the evidence for rare events. Rather, he gives weight to the probability of regular events while discounting the countless testimonies that we get for rare events. Okay, I have never seen a hole-in-one but I believe they've happened in history. They are very rare events, but I believe the testimony of the people who say they've either seen them or done them. I've never seen somebody bowl a 300, but I believe in it based on the testimony, even though it's a very rare event. So Hume's arguments against miracles is that he confuses believability with possibility. He would have to say that an eyewitness, an eyewitness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ would have to disregard disregard what his senses were telling him and deny what he sees, hears, and feels in order to be a wise person. So Doubting Thomas, okay? He was a David Hume guy for a while, wasn't he? Okay, I will not believe unless I get empirical evidence, right? I need to touch the wounds that I saw. I saw the nails go through his body. I know he was up on that cross. I know he was very wounded. If I see those wounds, I'll believe. Okay? And isn't Jesus gracious? Because one way I know Jesus is better than me because that I'd say, Thomas, you can take your doubts right to hell with you, man. I've done, I've done enough for you, haven't I? You want to doubt after three years like you just have, man? Give me a break. Okay? But that's not how the gospel reads, is it? Okay? Jesus being ever so gracious says, touch here my hands and be not unbelieving but believing. Okay? Alright. Excuse me while I check. Uh, let's see. Hume argues in a circle. Yeah. Alright. Additional problems with David Hume. He argues in a circle. Instead of weighing the evidence of a miracle, he rules it out from the beginning to his preconceived belief against miracles. So he goes into his investigation and his theories, not believing in miracles. So therefore, the only way is the evidence that supports his theory. This goes on in science all the time. The reason why creationism is having a tough time breaking through into the university is because they presuppose that God does not exist and they only accept evidence that supports that. They will not entertain any other evidence. It's just how it goes. Hume makes the same mistake as all Darwinists. He hides his conclusion and the premise of his argument by way of a false philosophical presupposition. He starts with miracles aren't possible, and so he says, therefore, they're rare, and therefore, you should not take the credibility of rare occurrences because the testimony of greater occurrences, that they follow natural law, that's greater evidence, so if you're wise, you follow the greater evidence. No, if you're wise, you follow all the evidence, right? Right? Follow all the evidence. His false philosophical presupposition is that all human experiences are without miracles. We can't know that, he can only presuppose that. But as we have consistently seen, miracles are possible because a theistic God exists. Alright, so the bottom line is that David Hume, without justification, simply declares that the only believable events are regular events, and since a miracle is not a regular event, it fails to meet this artificial criteria. If we can't believe in rare events, then we can't believe in anything from history. Because history is comprised of succeeding, rare, unrepeatable events. That's what history is. History books are not made up of common events that happen all the time. History books are made up of rare events that you study and there's a name attached to it and a date and a location because that's the one time that that event happened that we're studying in history. So all of history is made up of succeeding rare events that become noteworthy enough to make it into our books. David Humaite shouldn't believe any of those events based on his theory. So it's really, really not strong theory. All right. So people say, well, why don't we see miracles today? How many of you are saving that for Q&A? Okay. Now, first of all, there's many individual claims of miracles today, such as doctors confirming a healing that makes no medical predictable sense. Okay. So uh, a former student of mine, uh, overdosed, in a coma, three, four months, something like that, no brain activity, uh, really thinking when are we going to pull the plug, when are we are going to pull the plug. Her wonderful, wonderful parents would not leave her bedside. This babe turned prayer over and over again. I'll never forget her father being at her bedside, massaging her feet day and night, just showing her all kinds of love. Um, And um, I would visit with another teacher, and we would leave that hospital room just saying, man, that call's going to come, and we're going to have to surround this family with all kinds of love. And and affection and care because how are they going to handle this? I don't know how they're going to possibly handle it. And sure enough, the phone call came and it was that she woke up. And as she woke up, um, brain activity increased and increased. And um, I can say that in the last couple months, I actually wrote her a letter of recommendation to law school. That's how much she has recovered, okay? Um, she had a doctor who walked into her hospital room after she woke up and he said, I know God visited this room, so I just want to spend some time in this room because he's the only explanation for her recovery. That girl should not be alive today. So that's a individual claim of a miracle, um, that a doctor is saying there's nothing in medicine to explain this girl's recovery. And it's not that she woke up and was a vegetable or anything like that. She woke up and she's a a full. She came into my classroom and gave her testimony one day. The kids were just dumbfounded. And and quite frankly, we tried to get her off of drugs and alcohol for years and years. And it it took the coma to get her to quit. And and so God sometimes stops at absolutely nothing to get you back. Right? Absolutely nothing. All right. So anyways... Um, so miracles now, large scale Red Sea splitting miracles, those aren't going to happen again. Okay, Hebrews chapter one tells us this. It. Hebrews chapter one tells us this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. He has, in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, from also He made the worlds. Now, God spoke many times and in many ways in the past. Through the prophets. How else did He speak? He spoke through various miracles. How else did He speak? He would tell Jeremiah, like, Look at this, what do you see? I see a bowl of fruit. Well, just like that bowl of fruit goes bad, so is Israel going bad. That's how he would speak. He would use whatever. He spoke through a donkey, right? Through a smart ass, right? Okay, don't don't accuse me of anything. I'm zoologically correct there. I want you to know. All right. Now, he still uses that today, doesn't he? (laughs) He's doing it now, apparently. Now. So he spoke at various times, various ways. Uh, All this Christ is with these last days. He's spoken to us by his Son. Jesus Christ is the last and the greatest revelation of God. Massive revelations about God that we have in the Old Testament. If they happen today, what would that be saying about the revelation of Jesus? That's not good enough. it's insufficient. You need more than Jesus. Okay? So Jesus Christ stands in history. It's the pinnacle of the revelation of God. It's God Himself in the flesh. Okay? Now, so nearly all of the miracles that happen in the Bible are from three time periods the time period of Moses, the time period of Elijah and Elisha, and the time period of Jesus and the apostles. And all three of those biblical time frames were significant. And that God was doing something unique in those three time frames. And you would do it through a man that con- the miracles confirm that this is the messenger. Okay? So with Moses, God was doing a great deliverance from slavery, right? From bondage and slavery to Egypt. So he would do these great and wonderful miracles, whether it's the splitting of the Red Sea, whether it's manna every day for 40 years whether it's the quail that will come down, whether it's water from a rock, uh, whether it's miraculous victories in warfare.
1: Uh,
0: He would use Moses and the Ten Plagues, of course. He would use Moses as this miracle worker, uh, miracle working prophet. Elijah and Elisha was another time of great deliverance. Not deliverance from slavery like Moses delivered from, but deliverance from idolatry. When idolatry got its peak and the false prophets were running rampant, he sends Elijah and Elisha for that great deliverance, and they were miracle-working prophets. And then, of course, you have Jesus and the apostle, deliverance from sin and death. Three great eras of deliverance. God equipped the men of those deliveries with the power of miracles. Now, how? not only did the miracles authenticate the messenger, because Nicodemus will say, nobody could do these things unless they are from God. But they told more of a story than that. <laughs> For example, they told what kind of prophet you were coming as. So, In other words, the first miracle Moses does in the templates is what? Water to blood. Water, which is a symbol of life. Blood is a symbol of death. So that first miracle of Moses is announcing that this is a prophet of death. The Egyptians are in for it for templates. Okay? Now Jesus has a first miracle that involves water as well. His first miracle is what? Water to wine. So water being the symbol of life, wine being the symbol of joy and fullness in, in life. And so Jesus comes as a prophet of life. It's announcing what kind of prophet he's going to be, a prophet of life. Okay, so it's showing that he's a greater prophet than Moses based on his first miracle. The miracle is confirming the messenger, confirming the prophet, and showing you what kind of prophet he's going to be. Moses will be a prophet of death. Jesus will be a prophet of life. All right. So as with the house, the foundation need only be laid once. And miracles in biblical times were special acts of God that laid the foundation for his permanent revelation to mankind, which is his son Jesus Christ. So the foundation need only be laid once. Paul will say in First Corinthians chapter 3, he says, He'll say that he's a master builder. And what makes him a master builder? He says, Because I laid a foundation for you. And that foundation that he laid down for us was Jesus Christ. He says, So you want to go to heaven? Your foundation has got to be Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation you can build upon and be saved. Okay? Now he says, now that that's your foundation is Jesus Christ, says now it depends how you build upon that foundation. Some will build with gold and silver and precious stones. Some will build with wood, hay, and straw. And he says the test that will come to the believer, we call this the Bema Seat Judgment of the Believer. This is not the great white throne judgment of the unbeliever. The great white throne judgment, those folks are cast into the lake of fire that Revelation says was prepared for Satan and his demons. Can you imagine permanently going to a place that was prepared for Satan and his demons? And that's where they'll be. Okay? But the Bema seed judgment is for the believer. Okay? It says, Your foundation is Jesus Christ, and here's your judgment. It says, It's a judgment on your works, how you lived your life. How did you build upon this foundation? Remember, Jesus talks of 30, 60, 100-fold rewards. So now at this judgment, your works are tested by fire. Why fire? Well, what happens to gold and precious stones and silver when you put it in fire? It becomes more pure, more valuable. Only the impurities are consumed. But that which is pure gold, pure silver, pure precious gem, makes it through the fire, but without any impurities in it. It comes out better than it went in. Just like you're going to come out of your grave better than you went in. Okay? Now, if you build with wood, hay, and straw, and God tests those works of wood, hay, and straw with fire, what's going to happen? Ain't going to make it out of the fire. Now, Paul finishes that by saying, you're still saved, but like barely. Okay? And there's no real reward. Because it all, all, all your life's work is burned up. There's nothing of true value there. Okay? Of the eternal value there. All right. So, uh, Jesus Christ becomes uh, that firm foundation that we build upon. So the question now is did God use miracles to confirm Judaism, to confirm Christianity, or to confirm Islam? Which faith has miracles to confirm that it is true? Well, we already talked about Judaism as far as Moses and Elijah and Elisha, right? So Judaism has miracles that can point to. Christianity has for its foundation Judaism, correct? And then it also has the New Testament. Both are jam-packed with miracles, correct? So we have both testaments confirming miracles. What about Islam? Okay, some claim... That Muhammad worked miracles, but those claims are not supported. And in the fact, what we do have written down is when Moses is questioned about miracles, not Moses, did I say Moses? Muhammad is questioned about miracles, he didn't point to any miracles at all. He actually said, have you read the Quran? That's his miracle, the Quran. Okay, have you read the Qur'an? Okay, first of all, it's kind of dark. I, I literally feel darkness when I read the Qur'an. Literally. Okay? But it's not very miraculous. In fact, it's highly contradictory. So contradictory that they have a doctrine called the doctrine of abrogation. The doctrine of abrogation says that if something at the beginning of the Qur'an contradicts something at the end, what comes at the end overrides what came at the beginning. Aren't you glad we don't have that doctrine in the Bible? I'd rather just have a contradictory free 66 books. Thank you very much. Okay? So it overrides that, the doctrine of abrogation. So Moses, I mean Moses, Muhammad did not point at any miracles that he performed. He's not doing any miracles. There's nothing to confirm him as a true prophet. Okay? So we have Judaism and Christianity that are loaded with miracles. Now here's the thing. Once you have established the miracles of Judaism, the question becomes, how do you distinguish the miracles of Christianity and the miracles of Judaism? How do you know when, when they, they, have, they have enough differences in claim that you can't embrace both? What's the major difference in claim between Judaism and Christianity that doesn't allow you to embrace both? It's, what it's who it says Jesus is. Is he just merely a prophet that's not a son of God and not the promised Messiah that was prophesied about? Or is he? And Christianity says, yes, that's him. Judeo says, no, it wasn't him. And it can't both be him and not be him at the same time, so they're contradictory, right? One can be true, both cannot be true. So the question is, which, which religion has a greater claim at miracles justifying it? Well, our miracle worker, Jesus, said this. He's talking to the Pharisees. And he says to the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures, which was just the Old Testament when Jesus said that, correct? He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's these that speak of me. So, he, so he's saying when Moses turns water into blood and you have your prophet of death, and that's his first miracle, Watch how I introduce my ministry to a first miracle. Water to wine. Okay, so, so he gives credibility and authenticity to these Old Testament miracles, but he says it's all pointing to me. These are pointing to me. Okay. Um, so with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, you're probably familiar with the story where he challenges the prophets of Baal to a contest on Mount Carmel. And he says, you get your sacrifice, I'll get my sacrifice, you call upon your God to consume it with fire, I'll call upon my God to consume it with fire. Whoever sacrifice is consumed by fire, that's the true God. That's the contest, right? So, the prophets of Baal, the Bible says from noon until three, start calling upon their God. And of course, as you know, there's no answer. Elijah actually mocked him. Okay. Elijah actually mocks them, saying he's out of town, he's busy, you probably caught him at a bad time, you know, something like that. Now, they start cutting themselves, making themselves bleed, believing if they shed their blood, it'll it'll incite Baal to answer them. But now they're all cut up and bloody and nothing happens. So then, of course... Elijah ups the stakes and says, douse mine with water three times over. So much water is poured on the sacrifice that even the trenches are are drenched in water. And then he calls upon God. God consumes not just the sacrifice, but all of the water as well. Now, the Gospel of Mark seems to be showing us that as the Old Testament promised that one would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, that they're pointing to Jesus on this, because when Jesus is up on the cross, the Bible says from noon to three, he says seven statements on that cross. And amongst those seven statements, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama Sabatini, which means what? You guys know Aramaic, come on. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, your Bible actually leaves that in Aramaic for you, doesn't it? It gives you the Aramaic there. Because the Eloi, Eloi makes the Pharisees say, oh, look, he's calling Elijah. They thought he said, Elijah, Elijah. They goes, he's calling for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah comes and rescues him. In other words, the contest is back on. If Elijah rescues Jesus, then he is obviously a true prophet. But if he doesn't rescue, if Elijah doesn't come and rescue Jesus then he must be a false prophet of Baal. Remember when they accuse him of driving out demons by the power of Beals of Baal? But if Elijah doesn't rescue him, that means he's a false prophet of Baal, which makes the Pharisees who are opposing Jesus the ones that are in the spirit and power of Elijah. But if he's rescued, then he's in the spirit and power of Elijah and they're false prophets of Baal. So it's a contest now. The Pharisees, let's see if he rescues them. And, to boot, Jesus looks like the false prophet of Baal. Because he's cut up and bloodied, calling out to a God that doesn't seem to be answering him. From noon to three, the same time that the prophets of Baal were calling out. Okay? And Elijah never comes. So how do you think the Pharisees walked home that Friday night? Feeling pretty good about themselves. And that lasted till Sunday morning, didn't it? And everything changed. So, the miracles of Judaism are pointing to Jesus Christ, aren't they? The fulfillment of it all. Plus, you have the Pharisee Nicodemus saying, you have to be from God because all of the miracles you're doing. We call that enemy attestation. He's a part of the group that actually gets Jesus killed. And from that group, Nicodemus rises up and says, we cannot question your miracles. In fact... When he drives a demon out of somebody, they realize we can no longer deny his miraculous power. Instead, we'll question the source of that power and say, you do this by Beelzebel, the prince of demons, not by God. But what can't they deny? His miraculous power, correct? Clearly a miracle worker. So, I will finish by saying that just like a king uses a signet ring to say, wherever this letter goes, they'll know this is from me. How does God say, you're going to know this is from me. Miracles is one of the ways. Prophecy is another one. But miracles are what we're talking about tonight. And so what do miracles confirm? Certainly much better than Islam. And because the miracles of Jesus complete and make more meaning out of the miracles of Judaism, it certainly stands to reason that this, all of these scriptures are about Jesus. Therefore, the most reasonable explanation for all of the evidence we've covered is that over atheism, agnosticism, polytheism, and the monotheistic religions, Christianity is the only one that has not had a problem with anything that's been said. Christianity stands as the one that didn't take any hits on that. They say, well, that's because you're a Christian. Well, yeah, but just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean we can't analyze science and archaeology and all these other things. It's so like I was asked to speak on an abortion issue, and I had a female student say, do you think you're the best one to speak about abortion? And I said, well, why don't you think I am? She said, because you're a man. And I said, is this some mysterious thing that only the female understands? Right? So just because you may have a bias or not a bias doesn't mean you can't evaluate the evidence. I can evaluate if something's alive or not and you're putting an end to that life. I don't need to be a woman to know that. Right? Okay. Wow, did I sneak in the abortion issue out of nowhere. You yeah, know? Okay. All right. <clears throat> All right. Uh, so that's the end of tonight's song and dance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, in Jesus' name. For Jesus, Lord, we thank you that there's no explanation for him and all the miracles he does unless he was sent from you, God. And we thank you that the greatest miracle of all, Lord, that you brought us from death to life, Lord, that you've forgiven our sins, Lord, that you gave us this miraculous book that has changed multi-millions of lives over time, and, Lord, that has touched our hearts to give us the light of the truth of eternal life in Christ Jesus. So to you be all the glory, in heaven and earth and under the earth. And Lord, we bow our knee to you and confess that you are indeed the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.